From the Los Angeles Times, this is Can't Stop Watching, your TV faves on their TV faves. I'm your host, Yvonne Villarreal. Welcome back, and thanks for joining us. Ahead of the Emmy Awards next month, I'm interviewing six more of your favorite TV stars. This time, they're all Emmy nominees. My first guest in this special bonus run of Can't Stop Watching is Tracy Ellis Ross. She was nominated for Outstanding Lead Actress in a Comedy Series for playing Rainbow Johnson on ABC's Blackish. The Emmys are extraordinary. It is a, a treat beyond treats to be able to do what we do, what I do, to be able to be on a show like Blackish that continues to tell these stories in ways that people can receive them that have not been able to receive them, didn't understand the history of the N-word didn't understand police brutality from this perspective. Tracy tells me how she spent her Emmy nomination day and why she speaks up for her character on set. Plus, she opens up about the emotional moment she debuted her singing voice for her mother, none other than the legendary Diana Ross. Here we go. Support for Can't Stop Watching comes from BBC America's Killing Eve. Now nominated for eight Emmy Awards, including Outstanding Drama Series, Outstanding Lead Actresses in a Drama Series for Jodie Comer and Sandra Oh, and Outstanding Supporting Actress in a Drama Series for Fiona Shaw. This season was hailed by critics as deliciously watchable, genre-defying, and a bloody good time. BBC America congratulates Killing Eve on its Emmy nominations. Tracy, thanks so much for joining me. Tracy, thanks so much for joining me. I'm so happy to be here. Hello, Yvonne. Hi. You know, before um, we got on this call, I was talking to Paige, our producer, because I don't know if you have this experience, but I have to be careful, like, when I time interviews now because I have to take into account, like, if the landscapers at my apartment complex are coming— the trash, everything. Tell me about it. Listen, we we are all making sense of a world, like a convergence of worlds. This was the funny one for me. When the pandemic first started, I couldn't figure out the timing with hunger, making food and eating and scheduling enough time for that, thinking in advance I now take things out of the freezer the day before, and it's part of my routine. But at the beginning of the pandemic, I was lost because I'm never home, first of all. Um, my The life pre-pandemic was unsustainable, what I was doing, but nonetheless, I had made it normal. And I, I you know, during my lunch break, the you've already ordered your lunch and the lunch is ready. And then you eat it in the 20 minutes really fast while you're doing 17 other things. But you can't do that. Like, I can't do 17 other things while I'm trying to make food and then eat. It's it's fascinating. Yeah, well, that's the thing. It's like all the trivial things that seem like inconveniences, the time that you have to sort of process it and like have some perspective of what really matters. 
teaching yourself how to push some of those things aside and focus on the bigger picture? It's a lot. But you know what? I have to say that um, those actually are some of the silver linings and some of the um, beauties of the pandemic. I feel very clear that those things are, while uncomfortable or hard to adjust to, or like, you know, not even hard, but just like, you know, like a little bit like, okay, what is this, you know? They uh, are privileges um, in the context of what is happening um, in the reality of how this is affecting people. So uh, it's it's funny to sort of poke fun at those areas, but I also am very aware that this pandemic, for so many reasons, the reverberation has been so loud and um, so undermining and on such deep levels and also so revealing um, of so much of the inequity that exists, so much of the systemic inequity, et cetera, in this country. And so, um, you know, figuring out how and when to prepare my food seems very low on the scale. Well, I'm sort of curious, like, given everything that's going on, when something like the good news of an Emmy nomination, which congratulations on that. Thank you. How do you even process that in a year like this? Honestly, let me tell you how I process it. First of all, uh, one of the ways that the pandemic has affected me is sleep is really interesting. Time is totally different. You know what I mean? So um, it's been really tough for me to settle my nervous system down and fall asleep at night. And so often, you know, it's a little later than I'm used to. Um, so I had a 9 a.m. workout um, and I didn't go to bed until like one or two. And so I was like, that's OK. I'm just going downstairs. There's no commute. Um, I will set the alarm for 8.15 and then 8.30. So 8.15, the alarm went off. And that's when I take my phone off airplane mode. And of course, in the time we're in, I was like, something very bad is happening. Like, like what, what, what now, Right. And then I got congratulations was the first one I opened from um, one of the executives at ABC. And I was like, for what? Like, uh, uh, I had no idea that the Emmy nominations were even coming or happening. So it took me a minute to like catch up. So you say, how do you make sense of it? I don't know. I mean, this morning I was woken up at 4.30 in the morning with an earthquake. So... <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's my nervous system is like, what? It's like this roller coaster of crazy. You know, it's deep gratitude. I feel that right now, um, taking in the moments of joy are really important and should be treasured. And it and that's always the case with a nomination, but it really kind of it just makes the moment just something sweet. And I just kept saying, what a sweet, sweet day. What a sweet, sweet day. Well, and you also got flowers from Zendaya, I saw. I did. I got flowers from Zendaya. I got flowers from um, Chanel. I got flowers from um, Issa Rae. I, I, sent, uh, I sent some fun packages out, some flowers, some... Uh, my favorite cocktail of the summer is the Aperol Spritz. So I've been made, I sent Issa an Aperol Spritz basket <laughs> with a couple of oranges and, and some Prosecco. I also uh, got the nomination and then interviewed Nancy Pelosi for Emily's List. And then I stuck to my commitment of um, my sister Chudney has two small kids and she has a child enrichment center bookstore called Books and Cookies. And I just told her last week I would take over two of her story times. So then I did a story time yesterday. Um, so it was a fun day. <laughs> That's a full day. Like, I feel like now for me, I schedule one thing that I can agree to because I'm like, 
I just feel like everything requires so much more energy now. (laughs) (laughs) No, my days are just as full. It just all happens through the computer. So um, the people that say they're bored in the pandemic, I'm like, how do I get a ticket to this place? How do I get a ticket to this place called boredom? Please tell me where it is. I'd like to go. Same thing with people that say they've watched everything on Netflix. I'm like, tell me everything. Which ones have you watched? Tell me about it because I'll never get to see them. Never, never, never. (laughs) What have you watched during quarantine? Um, Gosh, if I can remember. I'm watching I May Destroy You. I loved Mucho Mucho Amor. Um, I watched the, oh my God, why can't I think of her name? She wrote The Handmaid's Tale. Come on. Margaret Atwood. Yes, Margaret Atwood documentary, which I loved. Um, My goodness, I've watched so much, but somehow I can't think of what. I watched um, Billions until that stopped. Um, uh, I watched Ozark. Gosh, it's been a five months now, hasn't it? But I've done a lot of reading. Books reading has been really fun and wonderful. Um, Sing Unbird Sing, I just finished. The Vanishing Act, I just finished. Um, I started Chiffon Trenches. Um, I'm about to start a book club reading with two friends of mine, and we're going to do Bell Hooks All About Love. Um, I went back and re-listened to all of the David Sedaris books because I love falling asleep to uh, audiobooks because I do the timer and turn the lights off. And I went to bed laughing for a good month. Um, what else? That's a good selection. But you you were a big TV watcher as a kid, right? I'm just a big TV gal, yes. Um, I even, my first TV job was a show called The Dish on Lifetime. It was like a TV magazine show. And I sang the um, opening song and it's sort of the like mantra, cause I'm a TV girl. I live in your TV and I'm a TV girl. Talk about that relationship to TV that you had. Like what were the shows that you couldn't stop watching? So I loved, um, and it's funny because when I tell them all, you're like, ah, so um, I loved Lucy, Carol Burnett. I was allowed to stay up late. Lucy obviously were reruns. Um, Charlie's Angels, um, uh, Cagney and Lacey, Kate and Allie, Wonder Woman, Bionic Woman. Uh, those were the main ones that I can think of. And it's funny because, you know, I didn't, it wasn't like I'm strategically going to watch a whole bunch of shows with women in the leads and I'm going to follow their strong nature. But of course, I became a woman and it shows you how incredibly impressionable um, you are watching television and the impact that it has and the sort of archetype that it creates in your life, um, the standard. But even though they were not women of color, I was watching women leap bounds, solve crimes, be friends, show up in their families' lives and be funny, be glamorous, be silly, um, all of these things. And I feel like it really defined the kind of woman that I became. Obviously, I also had that example at home um, in my mother and my aunt, you know, in, in the family that I come from. But I really gravitate towards strong women that have great style <laughs> and are really funny. <laughs> But has that always been sort of top of mind in your own career of like recognizing what you appearing on screen means for other people watching you? Yeah, it's somewhere along the way it became very conscious. But um, in the beginning of my career, it was more about, you know, as a black woman, as a woman of color, but as a black woman, you're as a black person, you're raised um, 
with a standard of excellence and a level of having to work twice as hard. And like, there's a standard you have to keep in order to be received as equal. Uh, and so that was baked in um, to the portrayal and, and how I walked through the world. And then taking on the uh, importance of making my mom proud and the legacy that she built and the uh, opening that she created through her career. Then when my brothers were born, who are 15 and 16 years younger than me, I felt very responsible for um, the image that I put forward and making them proud or not proud. And then it sort of reverberated beyond that. Um, when I started to... Uh, realize the impact in the world um, that you have in that position because of the impact that it had on me, uh, started to realize the imbalance that existed in the representation that was out there um, and the importance of representation, both in how it had impacted me and how, how it impacts others, the sort of reverberation of how um, humanity is perceived and also defined through these images and stories and how stories are told and the representation that is in them. And, you know, in the beginning of your career, you don't really have a choice. You're, you know, but what you have a choice about is how you play the role you get. You know, um, I thought Girlfriends was a dream role. I had no idea I was going to get that at the beginning of my career. Uh, but once I was in there, it was very important to me how and what I was portraying. But on Lyricist Lounge, one of my first jobs uh, there was a lot of conversation about that. An actress had uh, left the show because she felt like the representation was not good. So when I went in, I was already so on high alert paying attention to, did I feel good? Like, what was my compass on? Did this feel like I was portraying something that I could stand behind and feel good about? I, I remember reading that... When you took on the role in Blackish, like obviously the the story is told through Jay's perspective. And one of your concerns early on was, I don't want to be the sitcom wife. Like, I don't want to fall into a trope of just like doing the zany things on the side or like feeling like I'm second fiddle or whatever. When did you feel like you could have a say in terms of raising concerns if you ever felt it was veering into that territory? Oh, I've always been that person <laughs> in my career, even before I was an actress. When I was working in fashion as a fashion editor and uh, working in the magazine and editorial world, I was the same person. I speak up. Um, it, it Actually, for me, it's been, you know, wh where are the places? Like, is it effective for me to speak up now? Is this really the time? Is this the battle to... To push. But unfortunately, or fortunately, I'm a person that if something starts to snag me as like, this is wrong, this does not feel right, I cannot help it. I cannot be in my body. And I it's it, you don't want to be around me. Like, and I, I and I've got to say it. And I um I've always been that person. Uh again, thankfully or unthankfully, like it, it just is what it is. Um so from the beginning, on Girlfriends, I spoke up. On Lyricist Lounge, I spoke up. On Blackish, I did. And I don't know if it was quite the way you framed it. I was in love with the role from the start. There were things about it that always concerned me, but that's with any role because I'm I'm trying to, it's not that they concern me, but there's areas that I'm like, this is the area I really want to make sure we fill up or I have an understanding of why this is the choice that this person is making. And does that really feel true to who I believe this person is? 
to be. I fell in love with the idea on Blackish that this was a couple that was in love with each other, that this was a family that was surviving and not thriving, and that this was the story of a Black man in America that is not often told, and that this was an American family. But we were a Black family. Um, we weren't a family that happened to be Black. We were a Black family. And those things were incredibly exciting to me. The fact that this was a couple that loved each other and liked each other and that the comedy that it was the, that was at the core of this show was not based in two people that didn't like each other, that was going to play into the tropes that always exist of the nagging wife and the husband who can't do what he wants because the wife is always nagging. Like that kind of comedy between a couple, to me, doesn't continue to expand our understanding of the male and female roles or, or you know, just the husband and wife or any of those things. Um, what it is to be a woman and a full person. What I did speak up about from the beginning um, was, why am I carrying laundry? Why am I the person in the kitchen cooking right now when this has nothing to do with the scene? Even sometimes when it does have something to do with the scene. And I started coining them as lady chores. Why am I doing the lady chores? Can Anthony do the lady chore? You know, um, quote unquote lady chores. Because uh, I don't believe they're lady chores. I think they're house chores. And I don't believe that they should. we should assume, because I believe every relationship is a negotiation between two people about what each of them feel comfortable doing. And I think the more that we portray that on television, the more that that becomes the reality out in the world or matches the reality that the world actually is. So for me, Bo, um, although there are times when it does match the experience of the scene, I'm like, I always take a bird's eye view and look back at the context of television, at the context of being a woman on television, at the context of being a Black woman on television. And how can we tell a fuller story? And you mentioned, and I always say, you know, this story is told through Dre's eyes. So in that sense, it is the traditional story of a sitcom. It's told through the husband. Um, but Bo plays the guide she guides the audience through this story. And part of, and she's sort of, not the conscience, but the guide as the story is being told. And part of what I have found interesting about that is how do I hold the space and keep asking our writers, why is she doing this? And how can, in the moments that I am on screen, how can I bring the fullness of the life of what was happening off screen to that moment? Which usually means a point of view, what do I feel about this thing that's happening? I'm not here to service my husband's jokes or my husband's life or my husband's choices. I have my own choices. I have my own point of view. Um, all of those things, which seem small, but they make a huge difference in the way a character comes off the screen. And the writing is extraordinary on our show, but those are also things, I mean, you know, they're sick. I'm sure they're sick of me. They, you know, they get the call from the director. Tracy's asking why again. The writer on the floor. I'm like, can you just tell me why I'm doing this? Well, it's just that, look, the, the reason can be it services the scene, but you got to give me a why. I just need a why. If it's just because I'm in here to plug in a thing because the da-da-da-da-da, uh -uh. uh -uh. Well, I love to hear that. You know, something I always struggle with is like, I do care about things a lot. And I always worry that Am I going to come across as difficult for raising an issue? Or, and then it's like, you know, that internal, just do it. Yeah. Well, it's not the, you know, I, I get it. Like, I, the same thing comes up for me. Of course it does, you know. Um, and as a Black woman and as a woman, it's the, these are things that obviously always come up. There's a, an idea of who I am before I enter the room. 
you know, um, that, that has nothing, might have nothing to do with me. I have come to terms with the fact that when my head hits the pillow at night, if I don't speak up, that is more damaging to me. Um, I would prefer to suffer the whiplash of people possibly thinking I'm difficult. Again, like there's this thing that we as women and women of color have to do where you have to, we have to think of all the things. How's the effective way for me to say this? What's the way that I can say this so it doesn't come across like this? I mean, you know, men just say it. They just say it. You know, this is generalizing. I'm totally generalizing. But often men speak their feelings as facts. We speak our feelings as feelings. And um, yeah, it's okay. I mean, it's part of the reason, you know, I feel like these are all opportunities to keep expanding and opening the frames with which we are received, you know, expanding that real estate. Please give a TED Talk on this topic. (laughs) What would you call this topic? I don't know. Like, what's the name of my TED Talk, Yvonne? I mean, I did the wisdom, the, the wisdom of fury. Um, but this is, this is a really, I agree with you. It's a really interesting topic. Would we tell the top, this, this subject through the lens of television or sort of playing a role, or would we tell it through the story of being a woman? That's a good question. Cause both are appealing to me, but I just know, like, these are the, the things I have constant text conversations about with colleagues, with friends and their jobs. Like, Oh, I know. My goodness, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'm going to think on that. If you come up with an idea, let me know. Support for Can't Stop Watching comes from AMC's Better Call Saul. Now nominated for seven Emmy Awards, including Outstanding Drama Series, Outstanding Supporting Actor in a Drama Series for Giancarlo Esposito, and Outstanding Writing for a Drama. Entertainment Weekly hails this past season as the most intense, complex, and formidable season yet. AMC congratulates Better Call Saul on all its Emmy nominations. You stepped behind the camera for a second time uh, on Blackish on on the series. Um, I know you directed on Girlfriends, um, and that episode was titled Black History Month. Um, and it came about because of some rescheduling because you were supposed to do the finale, the season finale, right? But talk about like the sort of challenges this episode created, or or what what the experience taught you, or how you know your knowledge of the show enhanced what you were able to achieve with this episode? Yeah, I was also supposed to direct last season and I gave up my two episodes um, because I started a hair company and uh, directing is is full-time in a different way than acting. Acting is full-time uh, for sure, but directing is full-time in a different way. The first thing I'll say is that directing comes from my mind and my eyes Um, and requires 
all of my mind and my eyes. And acting comes from my gut and my heart. So that in and of itself is fascinating. The Black History Month episode, I was very minimally in it and I was really grateful. And it really gave me an opportunity to experience my flow as a director in a different way. And I loved it. I love directing because I love being in charge. (laughs) I love directing because I love the opportunity to tell a story through a completely different voice. Well, and you got to direct Octavia Spencer. (laughs) Come on now. Come on now. Is that intimidating? Like, what notes do I give Octavia? (laughs) No, you know, I actually didn't find it intimidating, but there's not a lot that intimidates me. What I found it does is it begs you to um, be at your best. Do you know what I mean? It, it, It sort of says, stand up straight, young lady, like bring your best, you know? I will tell you that there is a, there's always a reason you, you see actors that are that extraordinary and they don't come with a, I'm extraordinary. They come with, tell me what to do. What are we doing? Like, you know what I mean? With a collaborative point of view choices. She was so um, present and game and wonderful. You know, she was just a, a, a wonderful other actor that we were working with. Um, and I had to pinch myself because I was like, this is crazy. But it was really fun. And I was proud of the notes I gave. Good. Well, you're also the co-creator and executive producer of Mixed Dish. And I'm curious, like, how has exploring Bo's childhood and serving as a narrator, like, how has it changed your understanding of Bo, like, as you play her now? It doesn't necessarily come into my head. I'll tell you that when we were looking for Alicia and Paul, my parents, I remember Tika and I had a really interesting conversation. um, And I said, remember who Bo is? Who made her? So even though it's the 80s, and even though she's a wife, she is Alicia. She's not a wife. Um, because you think of who is the woman who made this character that we know, you know? Mixedish has been such a wonderful opportunity to explore Bo's point of view. Um, and to do that with that really fun device of the voiceover, which is current day Bo, telling you about what she learned. And it's, it's all a flashback. It's, all ex- it's exactly what we do on Blackish, but this is the flashback. How do you think Bo would be dealing with this time that we're living in? Well, you know, Bo's a doctor. So, um, and we'll see because we get to go back to Blackish. But um, I have a feeling Bo's on the front line. So I feel like Bo is on the front lines. I feel like Bo is doing what Bo does, which is having her hands in everything to the best of her ability and juggling many, many hats while trying to keep her family safe. But um, I think it'd be really interesting to see the Johnsons within this. Dre having to work from home and um, shifting to all of their advertising um, that is through the lens of COVID. And Well, I mean, we've talked about all the titles you've had recently. Executive producer, founder, CEO of a hair care um, line, and then director and we need to talk about adding singing to that list. Shouldn't we? Shouldn't we, Yvonne? Let's do it. 
because you recorded your first song for High Notes. I remember watching your Instagram live and it was so touching to see how emotional it made you to debut your song. So I just wanted you to talk to me about like how did doing that enrich you or what did you learn about yourself in doing it? Oh, I learned so many things. It did. It enriched me so fully. Um, I feel like the experience of singing for the high note um, and recording five songs, being able to sing and perform live on stage in order to shoot some of those scenes, those performance scenes, um, was an experience of unbridled freedom and joy for me. I always wanted to sing. I don't know at what point, unconsciously or consciously, or maybe a combination of both, I put that dream aside. Um, it was terrifying, um, but incredibly fulfilling to walk through a fear towards a dream. It was as if I didn't even realize that I'd been walking through life, like not using one of my arms. Um, and all of a sudden I was like, huh, huh, huh. I didn't even know I was doing that. Like, was I, did I do that to myself? Like, whoa, you know, so that's one thing. Um, and in essence, what I'm saying is just that I was not using my full self. I also discovered I had so much fear about like what my voice was supposed to sound like, you know, this idea that was it going to be compared to my mom or was there going to be an expectation that I should sound like, I don't know what. What I discovered is that my job was not to worry what I sounded like, but was to tell the truth and to get out of my own way, which is exactly what I do in my work as an actor. So as much as I felt like this was a completely different world, I realized that it's the same channel of expressing myself. It's just coming out with melody behind it. So, but yeah, life-changing moment for me. And did you hear that I was on the charts? Yes. I'm a charted artist. Ryan Seacrest interviewed me. He was like, you're on the adult contemporary charts. You're number 14, darling. I had jumped around in front and behind Kelly Clarkson. What are you talking about? I mean, I would imagine it's not intimidating playing it for your mom for the first time. Like, how was it when you played it for her? It was so special. It was so exciting. Um, and she cried and I cried and we were holding hands. And, you know, it was just, it was really lovely and special. But it's such a fascinating thing because I'm on TV every week. <laughs> it's like, it's so weird. <laughs> Like, if I take a step back from that, it's like, what? You know, uh, the reality of it, it, it's not lost on me. Playing her, my music was just another thing of sharing who I am. And it's fun. Well, it was finally announced to the surprise of no one that this year's Emmys ceremony would be virtual. I was going to ask you, like, have producers communicated with you about what the process will be like? Are you going to be scouting places in your home where you feel like, okay, this is where... There's nowhere <laughs> left in my home, Vaughn. There's nowhere left in, that no one's seen. I don't, what are you going to do? It is what it is at this point. Been in the house for five months. Been in here forever. This is what's happening. I'm surprised we're not shooting blackish from here. What are you going to do? So I don't know. I don't know what that's going to mean. But I, I am. What am I going to get all dressed up? Am I going to wear? I mean, I've been doing my own hair and makeup. Do I just keep doing that? Is it going to be on Zoom? Are they sending a camera crew? What happens? I don't want anybody in my house. I'm terrified of everything. These are all excellent questions. What if this is the year I win? What if I win this year and I don't even get to be on the stage? What are you talking about? What are you talking about? I don't know. Here's what it means. 
it'd be great to win. Here's what I want. I want everyone to vote. That's what I want. I want everyone to get registered. I want everyone to vote. I want us all to be collective in our energy and spirit, getting good trouble. Like John Lewis said, I want us to all be awake and know what's happening right now. The Emmys are extraordinary. It is a, a treat beyond treats to be able to do what we do, what I do, to be able to be on a show like Blackish that continues to tell these stories in ways that people can receive them that have not been able to receive them, didn't understand the history of the N-word, didn't understand police brutality from this perspective. And now here we are in this place. Uh, if it's virtual and that's what keeps everybody safe, that's totally fine. Uh, I would really like to wear uh, some high heels again at some point. I'd really like to, not for long, not for long, Yvonne. I'd really like to carry a purse. I, what are purses for? Doesn't this, don't you, doesn't this, uh, do you have that question? What was, what is an evening bag? What does that even mean? I ask myself, will I need one? No, you still won't need one. So I, I would love to wear something nice and I want people to vote. And I might be right here. I might be sitting right here. Well, do you have any sense of when production will pick up? And like, how are you feeling about going back? I feel nervous. Um, I feel like uh, I've spoken to our line producer. They are doing everything in their power to look at this from every angle of safety to keep everyone on our crew safe and also allow the space for everyone to do what feels comfortable for them. But on top of that, particularly us as actors, who will be the one people that can't wear masks and shields and, you know, all of those things. So they're walking it all through and we'll see. Well, I will end things by asking you about a big announcement that people were very excited about, which is that Girlfriends will be streaming on Netflix. Yeah. This is me going down the roller coaster. Woo! Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, finally, finally, I feel so excited. I feel excited for a whole new set of people to discover girlfriends. Um, I feel like our show remains relevant. I think of the subject matter we touched on. I think of the fact that, um, it was a show about four women, um, about our lives, our friendships with each other, our relationships with each other, um, our inner lives, our dreams, our hopes, our fears, not about men, the men that we are pursuing. Um, that was a part of it, but it wasn't the whole story. That was revolutionary. Um, we as a show stood on the shoulders of living single, um, different worlds, and shoulder to shoulder with Sister, Sister, Moesha, The Parkers, The Game, which came out of our show. And so to have these sort of be ushered back in, in this moment, what I love is the democracy of streaming, which allows you to choose from the poo-poo platter. You get to go this one, this one, this one, or this one. And to me, what happens with girlfriends being put into this mix is that we get to finally be a part of the landscape of the full spectrum of the stories that television can tell. It was so segregated then, we go through these waves, but this puts it right in the mix um, in a way that it deserves. 
I feel so proud of that show still. Still. How do you think people should binge the show? Like, I feel like I'll be doing, like, the skincare face mask and, like, peanut M&Ms. But what do you suggest? Well, I really, you know, it's, it is a show that you can watch out of order, but I would suggest you watch it in order. Um, I think you'll get the full progression of what we did. We did 173 episodes. Get in there, binge it. You know what I mean? And because there's 173, here's what I'm going to suggest. And we did like 20, 24 a season, I think, something like that. I'm going to suggest pick a different thing per season. Maybe for one of the seasons, you're masking and it's all about skin hydration. Maybe for another season, it's all about what you're eating while you're watching it. Maybe for another season, it's all about your hair. You go on patternbeauty.com, you buy your products, you deep condition while you're watching the show. You know what I mean? Then maybe you go and you move to, to skin, maybe a dry brush for an entire season. Mm-hmm. I love it. I love it. Tracy, it was such a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you so much. This was the most fun, Yvonne. That's it for the 32nd episode of Can't Stop Watching. I'm your host, Yvonne Villarreal. Our producer is Paige Heimson, and our executive producer is Abby Fentress Swanson. Our engineer is Mike Heflin, and a special shout out to Elena Howe for booking the guest for this podcast. Come back tomorrow. We're talking with Rachel Brosnahan. She's nominated for Best Lead Actress in a Comedy Series for her role of Midge in The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. But as someone who you know, even in the playing of Midge, just sometimes wants to like bop her over the head and be like, girl, wake up, come on. You know, um, It was fun to see her and to play her being humbled by realizing just how much bigger the world is than the one that she's lived in and succeeded in for so long. If you like Can't Stop Watching, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on Apple. Special thanks to Julia Turner, Matt Brennan, and Clint Shaw. We hope you're enjoying this podcast created by the journalists at the LA Times. Right now, access to facts has never been more important, and the Times is in the business of reporting them. Stay connected and subscribe, because your subscription supports the production of podcasts like this one and our award-winning journalism. Visit latimes.com slash support LA Times to subscribe. Thanks for listening, and see you tomorrow.